Okay, so welcome to episode eight of Three Security Buddies. I'm your host, Matthias Brudy, and I'm joined by Robert Clark. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Enjoying that it's very sunny and beautiful and hot in Seattle, and my kids give me a beautiful Father's Day today. So uh, it's it's been interesting, and that's why you see my beer or dark, because my daughter's gift was that she gave me a makeup. Uh, we can get into that story another day. And now we're not joined by Paul this time. Paul is enjoying a vacation somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but we do have a special guest for the first time ever, uh, Travis McPeak. I'm pronouncing that correct? Yep. Howdy. Hello, security friends. Hey, how you doing? Good. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, joining us. I didn't get any makeup for Father's Day. My kids are lagging. Uh, I mean, I, I, my two gifts so far were a makeup in my face and my youngest boy said daddy you gotta sleep with me as your gift and i'm like okay that's that's an interesting <laughs> gift it feels more for you than for me but like i'll take it it's a smart uh, kid so, right there yeah yeah so tonight it, it awaits me a full night of being kicked in the face probably <laughs> uh, that's that's a beautiful gift for father's day uh, a lot of love anyways uh we don't have uh, any follow-ups uh, um, we, we have it's been a, a pretty calm week i think so this week uh we had some interesting nist uh news about uh you know now they're telling us that we don't even need to change our passwords and we don't even need to actually make them that complex at all it's all about apparently about length so what do you guys think what is how do you take this new nist approach to password management in a somewhat passwordless future thank god i'm so time for this like every time that i've been told recently or we make people rotate passwords i'm just thinking about them taking this garbage password you know password and then adding a new number on the end of it so it's password one password two uh, if you have really strong pseudo randomly generated passwords and they're stored well then why would you ever do the rotation i think what you're encouraging people there is just to handle something, you know, use the same password everywhere and rotate it or have something awful that they memorize. So yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that this uh, has finally been updated. Yeah, I totally see you. Uh, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I was sharing offline with you guys that uh, a few years ago when we had the, the first sort of like uh, rotation at my previous job, we had a, a very interesting discussion about what was most important to require users to have certain complexity or certain length and you know and sort of reduce the the rotation and we actually basically did what you just said we concentrated more on length than complexity because of you know when we did the uh the math about like you know what would be more harder to quote unquote to crack we just felt that complexity and complexity was not necessarily adding a lot because it's very easy to cheat complexity and you just gave the perfect example you know password one and becomes password two or password 2021 or password 2022 and it wasn't really adding anything else but like if you had a 15 character password no matter how quote unquote dumb it down it was it was still relatively complex enough to be able to to be guessable by either rainbow table it's just you know brute forcing it uh, the, the one thing that i find interesting is besides the complexity i think rotation is going to become an interesting conflict when it comes to other compliance requirements and, and corporations probably going to have a, a hard time. I think users in general are going to love this as corporations get a little more flexible because everybody hates to rotate their password because I think at least the two of you maybe have run into like, oh, I accidentally rotate my password, I type it, I type it twice wrong, then I go to use it and I don't have email and then I have to go through the password rotation again or I get a call help desk and it's a nightmare, right? Like even for tech people. Uh, so normal users, they run into these issues too often and, and it's a nightmare for them. So I think reducing complexity and reducing uh, rotation is going to be good for the day-to-day, -day, but like it's still for DevOps and other type of people where we have still things like FedRAMP that actually requires like specific password rotations. Like I wonder when those things are going to either improve by going to a passwordless future or have to deal with the new guidelines as, as, you know, they're more and more confronted to, hey, you know, rotation is not the way to solve your problem. So I think this is a, an interesting space. You're, you're referring to um, 
SP800-63B, right? That's the, the recent updated guidance. You know, it goes beyond just password rotation, although I guess uh, before I go much further down that road, due diligence has to be given to XKCD and the uh, battery horse staple uh, comic uh, that we were all aware of. Um, you know, this was, honestly, this was the moment I think the industry really started to, to question in broad terms, the ridiculousness of the generalized entropy and complexity requirements around user memorable passwords. Like I, I, gen I genuinely believe that that was a turning point for, for the industry in terms of these things. This this comic for uh, the the one one listener who probably hasn't seen it, it's basically uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but a comic it's it's just an amusing take on the fact that um, battery horse staple is both easily easier to remember and higher entropy than most. Um, most complex passwords made up of mixtures of numbers and special characters. The So 863B is pretty interesting because it also defines a bunch of a bunch of levels that are required for, for different types of systems. Um, and it also separates for the first time I've really noticed this idea of a, a multi-factor OTP versus a single factor OTP. So OTP devices on their own that still require like levels of levels of um, credentials or levels of independent access before they will surrender something. Uh, so an example of a multi-factor OTP may well be um, something like Google Authenticator uh, or um, the one I per I personally use the Microsoft Authenticator, which also uses Face ID. So you have to use Face ID to even access the Authenticator, and then it will give me a a TOTP code or whatever, and I'll go and use the TOTP with the uh, with the place that I'm talking to. Compare that to say a single factor OTP would be something like an RSA key. You know, the old dongle thing that you would have on a key ring and it would continue reading it out. So they actually specify these three different AAL levels and what is allowable at each level. Level one is the lowest, level three is the highest. Overlays them with FIPS and how all those standards apply. Goes through the idea of a, the difference between an authenticator and a verifier and what the requirements are for those. It seems to me, like a very sensible, very sensible updating of the guidance, um, and I think it's I think it's going to be useful for for people to go and take a look, go and read through it. There's probably a lot of opportunity for people to bring out kind of simplified guides for like average security folks that aren't pulling together stuff for the government on a regular basis. But I think it's a great step in the right direction. I mean, as we all know, for a, for a system to be secure, it has to be usable, and so when you get these things like hey, I can't copy my password into a password field. You know, it's such a it's such a pointless piece of guidance and a requirement. And then, you know, what does that mean? It means people pick, you know, bad passwords that are easy to type because they don't want to use their password manager. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, the sooner that we can get away from kind of frivolous things like that and just, you know, yes, move away from passwords entirely to, you know, things that you have or, you know, things that you are would be great. But then on top of that, you know, really like take a step back and think about what are we trying to achieve here? What is the best, you know, feasible thing that most people are going to do? And if we make them do a lot more complicated steps like rotation and add weird symbols and things like that, like what are we really getting? Are we just incentivizing more bad behavior? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And my view of this is that we need to come up with solutions that actually take UX and security in the same direction. Passwordless seems to be a little, I mean, like the whole trendy passwordless sort of move nowadays tends to take both UX and security the same way. You know, like we're giving, we th through some magic and, you know, some crypto in the, in, in the bottom, you're giving users the illusion that they're not having to deal with any security, but in reality, you actually provided even more, I think. Another interesting solution that MDM devices have at a corporate level is uh, device trust where you are authenticating, you know, using a cert on the device. The consequences of that is that a lot of corporate laptops do not have a secure TPM. So, I mean, you cannot really attest the security of it unless you have a strong, like in the case of an Apple device would be, uh, you have a, a relatively new, I mean, nowadays they're not that new, but like something new, new enough in the corporate world that I will actually support a secure enclave. Uh, which I think is like five years by now. So rotation probably is cutting up. Uh, in the case of Windows, it's a little more difficult. Not every single Windows laptop that corporations buy do come with TPMs. Like big corporations usually tend to buy them, but a lot of them do not. 
And I think that helps a lot and that actually helps as one of the factors in the authentication. But uh, last week, Travis, we actually were discussing Apple's uh, sort of moving to passwordless support in it. The fact that that is becoming mainstream, I think is a tremendous push in the right direction to literally remove passwords. I would like two, three, four years from now not even be having a discussion about passwords because every site that is worth protecting uh, in the industry, so like, you know, the top 1,000 sites or the top 500 companies that actually provide internet services no longer use passwords. Like, I would call that a win. Uh, I mean, you're still going to end it up with like mom and pops and the WordPress and a lot, a lot of things that you could, you could argue that they provide security. But when I see something like Squarespaces, for example, like move away from password and the entire authentication scheme, like I would call that a, like, okay, like we won, like we won the battle against password. They're, they're, they're gone. And seeing Apple push it, seeing, you know, Microsoft in their own ways also pushing it. Uh, it's just, it makes me personally happy. Right. Like, and, and my comment is like, you said about the copy password. I hate it. I'm a, I'm a very strong one password user. And whenever I cannot paste it, I hate it. I literally usually go try edit like real time, the HTML, remove the, the tags because some people just enforce, you know, they know copy, I remove the thing and I literally paste it. But I'm like, why? Like, you're not making this more secure. You're actually just making, you know, like literally making it difficult for me to use a secure password. Like it's just so counterintuitive that but at the same time, I don't blame them. To your point, this is like people making requirements. Uh, that some companies are forced into having these things, like banks, for example, right? Uh, it's just, uh, I, I think for a long time, we went in the wrong direction. And it, it makes me happy now that I see, you know, NIST and the industry in general trying to push into the right direction. And, and you know, because of my previous work, worse in identity, I'm, I'm, it makes me very, very happy that the whole identity industry is pushing very hard to create stronger and more secure identities and, you know, pushing password away from the picture. Uh, the one thing that you actually mentioned, um, Robert, that is interesting is that, you know, this, this document goes into, it's not only to password, but also uh, MFA types. And I think there's also, just like password, there needs to be a lot more education into the different types of assurance that different MFA types provide, like SMS versus a YubiKey, you know, like convenience versus higher assurance. And I think security people understand them, but most common people do not. And the fact that we still see a lot of uh, SMS usage, it's it's a little bit, uh, it's better than nothing, but it, it sort of worries me in the same way that password worried me 10 years ago because it's getting too mainstream. I think some of the new features for like domain constraining them and a few other things for to avoid autocomplete is great. But the fact that SMS is just insecure by nature or, or you have, you know, very weak TOTPs, et cetera, et cetera. I think we might end up like five, six years again from now, like dealing with a lot of the mistakes that, a lot of the same type of mistakes that we did with passwords on the MFA arena. like a lot of MFA types that all of a sudden get popular and they're not really secure and then we have to deal with them. I think SMS is already sort of in that climb. And if I remember correctly, last, a few years ago, um, NIST also did recommend that against using SMS as, if I remember correctly, I might be completely wrong here, but I, I, I kind of vaguely remember that they were not recommending SMS as a, as a strong factor. I, I do wonder if, so yeah, SMS messaging is uh, problematic primarily for two reasons. Uh, one is SIM swapping attacks, which is where you convince your carrier to port somebody else's number to you, and then you go and do a password reset or something and you get a message. The other one, which requires slightly more advanced attackers, but is still fully, fully approachable, is uh, actually vulnerabilities in the SS7 network itself, which is understood to be very un insecure in a number of different dimensions. So there are, there are two different mechanisms by which you know, those things can be rendered less useful. I'm not sure that they are really dangerous other than when they are chosen over a better method um, just for the sake of convenience. Um, so this is why I think things like WebAuthn, which aims in, you know, firstly, it's very flexible, but in most of its incarnations is very convenient to use. I think WebAuthn is um, the thing that's going to help us like advance. So I think you're right. I think we will end up having a, a conversation in a couple of years time where we're trying to deprecate use of SMS. I don't see it as hugely dangerous right now. 
um, other than, as I say, where it may be diluting a choice that a user might have otherwise made to use something better. I think on your point around uh, pasting, one of the interesting things is a couple of years ago now, um, I just looked and it's actually uh, early 2017, uh, the UK government's uh, National Cybersecurity Centre, uh, which is a branch of GCHQ, released a, a blog article and I think a supporting website basically says let users paste passwords and it lays out like a few of the the misconceptions why people try to stop this like password pasting allowing brute force attacks or uh pasting making the making passwords easier to forget which is true but not a bad thing um and passwords hanging around on a clipboard which you know is also true although many password managers will uh, clear the clipboard after a short period of time um, but also not the problem not the right place to try and solve the problem so I just thought it was a very, I think your point's very valid. I think there is a growing groundswell of support and the UK Gov and, and US Gov both now saying this is a bad idea. We'll probably see it move on. And uh, hopefully we will um, see a cessation of the stop password pacing technologies that we uh, and libraries that we're currently subjected to when we visit not well thought out websites. Yeah, it's, uh, I think time will tell us, right? Uh, it's just... And, and again, like I, I agree with you about SMS. I'm, it's better than nothing. Like I said before, my biggest problem is that it's created an unnecessary trend. And, and I sort of have this epiphany when I had a, a, a dear friend of mine tell me, uh, she was logging in into the US, this, uh, USCIS website to do some citizenship stuff. And, and she's, uh, she accidentally clicked the TOTP and she set it up and she's like, well, it's not sending me the message. It's not like I have to go and, and type this thing. It's, it's, it's difficult. And I, and I took a time to actually explain her about like, hey, this is better. But it was, it was like, okay, this is creating a bad practice. Like people are getting used to, to this, which is not necessarily the, the best approach in the long term. Uh, but I agree with you. The one thing that it, it's interesting it might help or it might make these things a little bit more difficult is as we move more into uh, zero trust which is you know the, the, the other trendy thing uh, identity is key and having strong factors in order to live in a zero trust world where you don't have vpns where like you literally have to add, uh, authenticate users having the right second factors authenticators is going to be key and never trying to default into sms might be a complicated thing i totally see sms for example we in the US, we give for granted like mobile devices and access and 4G or 5G nowadays, whatever. But in uh, big corporations have to have employees all over the world. And there's still places where a lot of businesses and a lot of things are done through SMS. And because they don't have 4G, they have 3G and SMS is very practical, right? Like, or some of the mobile or some of the phones are still not as smart as normal phones. So having an app for those phones becomes complicated. So SMX is very convenient in those aspects and in those places. And companies tend to allow it because of that, but they will also allow it for everybody in the world. And people might inadvertently take convenience of it, but also ended up with less security because, yeah, it's, again, better than nothing. But depending on who you are and what's your job and what's your role, using SMS as a second factor might be the very bad idea. Like if you're a DevOps and you're using it to, as your second factor to access production servers, well, probably, you know, the security team should take action and not allow that from an identity provider that, that or whatever identity solution you use, even if it's in-house or, you know, a third party. But anyways, uh, I, I just hope that, that this is for the better and I do see a, a, a good trend moving, moving into the future. This is a different episode. We have our first special guest. So we're going to do things a little bit different today. We're now going to talk about news, a lot of news. We're actually going to talk about something completely different. Uh, we're going to do a, a little bit of a round table and we're going to start with Travis, given that he's the, the guest. And we're going to talk about how we actually got into security. And I know we have any suggestions uh, to younger people if they actually want to get into it in the industry, you know, what we'd recommend and what are some of the good things that we make decisions and some of the mistakes potentially that we make uh, across our uh, road. So Travis, uh, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. How, how do you actually get into security? Yeah, I love this topic. Uh, so I, one of the things I like to do is talk to people today that are trying to break into the industry. And I remember not that long ago when I was trying to get in, it just, it feels so daunting, 
right? It's like, oh, security is so cool. Everybody wants to hire somebody, you know, super senior. Nobody wants to take a bet on somebody that's just starting out. So totally get all of that. And I face the same things. I love having these conversations. You know, if we can help people get in, I think that's a good use of our time. But for me personally, I always knew that I wanted to be in security. Just when I was a kid, you know, I was like running around my grandma's house and picking up all the locks and like putting in a big pile and messing around with electronics. I kind of just love this idea that, you know, there's like attackers and defenders and, you know, people build devices or systems. They don't want you to do certain things. And there's other people that try to make those systems do things they're not supposed to do. Uh, probably, I would guess, like both of you, I started off, you know, as a kid on the attacker side. So, you know, from kind of an early age, like trying to hack my game system or hack Wi-Fi or things like that, you know, very, very much uh, traditional script kitty type stuff. Uh, but kind of led into this like, oh, this is cool. You know, I got that initial first rush of being, you know, making a system do something it wasn't supposed to. Um, I remember actually when I was probably eight or nine, we had a Windows box, you know, like old 486 things sitting there. And I had done something bad. So my mom had basically taken away my computer privileges. And that meant that they put a password on the Windows box. So I had a couple of exemptions. Like if I was doing certain things, they would let me on the computer. So one time I came, you know, I asked my mom to come and let me on so I could do one of the exemption things. And she'd been doing the dishes and she uh, basically like her hands were wet and the keyboard was wet. So the password was literally W. And so W and enter were the keys that were wet. And I was, I cracked my mom's awesome password by seeing that. Uh, yeah, just kind of continued from there. I'm really curious from both of you. How did you get started? I'd, I'd been interested in, in computer security for as long as I'd been interested in computers in general. So I guess uh, midway through high school was where I discovered things like Smash the Stat for uh, Fun and Profit, um, generally reading uh, Frack and other kind of online zines. And I was kind of just after the, the bulletin board scene kind of died. And I was a little bit behind the curve, but just reading all the stuff I could, I got super into the concepts of freaking. Um, I may have experimented a little bit with a few bits and pieces along those lines. Um, uh, I was in the UK and obviously US things like blue boxing don't work in the UK, but I wasn't smart enough to know that they didn't. So like I had a lot of fun going and trying it and uh, the occasional period of time where I maybe overstepped and then was worried about consequences and stuff. So that was all fun. I really kind of just played around with that. Like, like similar to Travis, um, Messing about with a, you know, as we look at it now, the laughable level of security in early versions of Windows. I uh, used to have various uh, exploits that I'd carry around with me. Either I had a, that's a proper little nerd. So I had like a, a ridiculously expensive watch that had a 128 megabyte USB stick in it, which I had a, a USB bootable ISO on, which had a bunch of tools that I had. You know, being the script kitty that I was, I'd just gone and like pulled all the tools I could find and didn't know how half of them worked. Had a similar thing on a, a credit card sized writable CD. I don't know if you guys remember those. There were about 50, about 50 megabytes I think you could fit on them. Um, so I had one of those as well, which I used to, uh, used effectively uh, in one, one previous life. Uh, hang on, <laughs> can I say that? No, I can't. Uh, so that's fine. Um, but basically various shenanigans, um, at various employers and kind of just messing around with different bits of infrastructure and stuff as I was a kid doing things that I should definitely shouldn't have done at the time, but never, never going, never going too far. How about you, Matthias? So, um, my life started in Argentina, obviously not in the U S just like you, uh, Robert, uh, so completely different rules, completely, completely different timelines, even though I'm only 40, I sort of lived uh, the life, most of my life of like dial up. Uh, and as I, as I was growing up, I still remember the first day that we actually got like somewhat of a decent non-modern uh, based internet and it was awesome. But I, I was into security and to try this point, like I was a script kitty, nothing. I, I wasn't creating anything my own, uh, toolings or anything like that, but using tools like do stupid things in high school. But I wouldn't consider myself uh, being into security. It was just learning and, and trying to understand, but mostly reading. I actually didn't got in, in college, same thing, like probably shouldn't say this, but like change all of the passwords for the printers because I found them to be the default one. So uh, some of my peers still tell me to this day that 
like about four or five years ago, they were still finding printers with random passwords. Stupid stuff, right? Like nothing really, like like printers are still working and everything. It's like if you actually need to service them, they will have to like uh, flash them. That's it. So nothing really bad, but things like that, right? Like and talking with friends and getting into it. When I was younger, uh, you know, doing quote unquote security, like in Argentina, they will use the, you remember the old things to process credit cards that were like, uh, that you have to literally suit, the manual swipe, literally. <laughs> and most people will throw in their trash all of the, uh, the the little yellow part, which actually you could go and get the credit card, the number, the CVV. There wasn't internet shopping or anything. So it, which, so it was more like, you know, sort of like trashing as a hobby. We never really use them for anything. But like me and a buddy, uh, and we will we'll just do it, like some of these things, just like, just the fuck of it. And, and it, it was fun, right? Like, and then it seems like, oh, you know, like I'm sticking it to the man. Like I now have credit card numbers. Literally, you know, like this is early 90s. So I don't think there was even like phone like buying. So they were good for nothing, but still interesting. And, and that's how like I always got, got interest in security. As I went to college, I, still did stupid stuff like I still knew but not really got into it a lot and when I actually uh, I, I came to college to the States when I went back to Argentina I my my first uh, job was to work for core security for those of you guys to remember it uh, it's a it's 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 a company that it was you know one of the first core impact yes core impact was the first pen testing like uh, tool right like uh, even came before like a metasploit and, and Argentina has an amazing security scene. I, I never got really into it uh, as a young kid, but like, I was extremely lucky that my first security job was with people like Alberto Solino and Rari and Gerardo Richarte and Futu, which I, you know, I was the tail of the lion. I, I got to learn so much in, in, and, and learn so much in the years that I was there that it allowed me to, to kickstart my career nowadays. And, to your point, Travis, I, for the most of my career, I've been in the offensive side of security. Um, and so it was, it was very interesting to, to work there and, and learn a lot. And those type of companies, in my opinion, are some of the best places to, to get into security because you get a, and I actually got into the consul- consulting side of things, not really the uh, development side of core impact. So we were users of Cup impact in, in, in the team, but not really uh, full-time developing it. Uh, besides, like every now and then, writing like one of the Python modules, right? But it wasn't our job at all. We were doing consulting for for third party companies. So it was it was very interesting to see how uh, you know how, literally when it started. Like to this day, I I will consider that I knew nothing about security, like real security or as a job doing security. Besides being a stupid crypt skitty before, right? That was very interesting and allowed me to uh, allow me to realize that. It was. It wasn't a job. Is what I ho- always have loved, and 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 I really enjoy it. Before we get into um, career development, which I think is the next sort of round of round of commentary we'll go through. Um, before then, I, I want to ask you a question. We'll start with Travis again, which is: so, what was the first successful like hack or the first successful bit of shenanigans you pulled beyond noticing a wet W on a keyboard? That really, really made you think that, yeah, this was going to be a fun industry to, awesome. to spend yeah, your career Awesome in. question. I was going to ask you the same thing. So two things, two moments in time, one one much earlier and one actually during my professional life. So the early one, uh, I sent my friend back Orifice and popped his CD drive out a few times. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I knew from that point on, I was like, this is amazing. I just want to like double down on this more. And then the first time professionally... I actually started off my career in QA and uh, one of the things I had to do was like come up with these kind of you know, wacky test cases for this product that I was working on. And there was, there was all these requirements around it. It had to do these things. It was this big combination of factors and I had to put them all in this horrible HP QA system. And so I wrote a Python script that basically enumerated all the factors and came up with like 1500 combinations and then hit the HP QA API and dumped all of the test cases actually into the horrible system. And, you know, basically it had like more test cases than everybody, you know, the whole rest of the organization combined. And I was like, okay, this is awesome. You know, they gave me this awful job. I automated it and I I love this stuff. So I just, you know, really want to go more into, into this line. How about you? So for me, uh, I guess, again, I had two. So the first one wasn't a hack as such, but it was certainly deviant. The education institution I was at at the time 
I guess was running Windows XP or Windows 2000, which has something called the NetSend API, um, which basically uh, you can, if you, it's a Windows subsystem API that allows you to send a message to another machine and it'll pop up in a dialog box. I remember this. So my, myself and um, a very good friend who uh, some of the, you know, Travis, but I won't name them here because I haven't spoken to them. We went and wrote a couple of tools that basically embodied this and allowed you to do two things. One, you could essentially use it as a private messaging app between two machines within the college and the college currently banned this. Uh, they didn't let you use instant messenger or anything, but if you use this app, you could kind of talk uh, to your friends in, in the same lecture theater or whatever, and just be very, very annoying. Um, the other thing of course, was that you could also use it to pop up messages um, on your, your lecturer or the, the person leading whatever um, session you were in on their machine, which led to many, many shenanigans. So we built like an ASCII art module for it and stuff. So you could just pop a message up on the big projector in the middle of your, and I appreciate this now, like your, your lecturer is working hard. They're trying to do all this stuff and trying to teach a bunch of ingrates something useful that they can take with them. But it was funny popping up like random bits of ASCII art on um, on lecturers' screens in the middle of uh, middle of large presentations. So I apologize. You're doing ingrate stuff, meanwhile. <laughs> yeah, no, it's extremely disruptive. People shouldn't do it. Like stay in school, kids. But it was it was it was hilarious to me at the time and kind of allowed me to realize that you know I could actually go build tools and do like interesting things. And that was kind of my big the big moment where I really started to 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 build toward these things. And then. Career-wise, well, actually, mine kind of happens a little bit later. Like that was enough for me to understand what I really, what I really enjoyed was on this security stuff and really understanding systems and how they could be subverted is kind of the the general theme. And yeah, the NetSend API, great fun, highly recommended. And just to date this, I think one of the tools was written in Visual Basic and the other tool was written in uh, Delphi. Old school. Um. So, <laughs> right, uh, Matthias. Uh, you must have a, a first hack or first bit of shenanigans that you'll be keen to share. Yeah, I think I, I share a few of the, the damn things that I've done when I was young. But I think uh, I owe it to my mom. I she was she she used to work in a computer lab in a company, and I I still have this very very blasted memory in my brain at a very young age. Like I don't even remember how how young I was, but probably like below five. And she used to work with like the huge IBM mainframes that had like the little monitors. So I remember going there and like seeing these computers and like, what is like the 12 and a half or something like that, like floppy disks and the big like tapes, drives. And that caught my attention at a very young age. So, um, and because my mom worked there, we always had like a computer, like, a, you know, like an XT or a 286 and Atari's and Commodore 64. So it was, it was very, I, I always like computers, right? Like, and I like to play with them, understand how, how how they worked, and and I think that's at the end. Like, that's it's not a hack, but it's what really got me into it. Like, I still remember vividly in the living room upstairs installing this thing that came on a CD called Linux 1.0 and completely wiping my 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 mom's uh, Windows installation. And she would up and she's like, "Where are all, all my files?" And uh, that was it was not a nice weekend, um, but she, you know, they, they were very good. They, they actually pushed me to like continue to test and innovate. And they sort of said, Hey, you know, this might be your career, right? Like that this might be your future. Uh, both of them are engineers. So it, it, it did help. Then career wise, I don't know if I have a, a first hack by working in a consulting, like we did so many engagements that I think it was continuously being able to like test things and find vulnerabilities like cross scriptings or SQL injections or, or, you know, like uh, trying to trying to write your, your first exploit uh, when you find a vulnerability. Those those were the moments that, let me put it this way. When, when I interview people, I always tell them, like, I know that I love what I do because every time I get a shell, even to this day, I still get chicken bumps out of it. Yep. I know I have authorization, but just the thrill of being able to successfully achieve my goal, which is getting a shell in a no system, question. still gives me chicken bumps. I never got tired of it because it's, it's, it's this moment of like, hell yeah, like a gotcha, right? Like an objective, done. It's not a hack. It's, I have stories about like either stupid stuff that I have done 
or you know like or cool vulnerabilities that I have found and some of them I still cannot talk to this day because you know you, you know as a consultant you sign you sign your soul to the devil to corporate America for the rest of your life but it's it's just that feeling that allowed me to to you know to say hey this is what I love like I don't I don't get these kind of things like that easily with many other things in my in life and I think that's what made me realize that yeah you probably want to stay here like this is not a job this is doing what you love and you're getting paid for so it. yeah so I think you know all of us have felt that kind of like love right and there's there's people today that feel the same thing right they they're doing these hacks and they get this oh yeah this is awesome feeling out of it so how you know I'd like to know from from all of you how would you recommend those folks pursue this path right like what is what is the connection between here's this thing you love and like, oh, you can do this for a job and it's really fun and, you know, whatever you want, um, you know, if you want to be financially rewarded or you want to do fun stuff or you want to work on cool projects, like whatever it is, you can do that with this career. So, um, yeah, Matthias, how would you get into this or how would you suggest folks make this jump? Things have changed significantly since we started. Like I'm, I'm 40. When I started doing this, probably if you wanted to test something was relatively it wasn't illegal, but you know, because it was just—it just wasn't illegal because there were any lost yet. But like nowadays, kids have bag bounties, books, like uh, name like four or five sites with like training courses. If they're going to college, they can take cybersecurity courses or like literally have a cybersecurity career and education and, and start testing the waters if they if they actually like it, right? Um, but you have like a U Academy or like a you know whatever all of those sites are like you can take cybersecurity courses for free. I think back bounty and getting into the Seagun back bounty, it's a, it's a great way to see if this is stuff that you like. And guess what? You actually potentially could get paid for it. It's a little bit more difficult than, than that I'm describing. But if you're any good at it, and if you actually like this, you, first you're going to enjoy it, whether you're getting paid or not. And, and second, you actually, you know, might actually end up finding a career path or and I know many successful stories of people that they go from, hey, uh, there is, when, when, I used, when I was working, previous job, we had a, one of those hacker one party things in Vegas. And there was this young kid, which also happened to be from Argentina. And he was about six, 17 or 18 or something like that. And him and his brother were like hacking. And I was like, okay, you, know, you guys are the future, right? Like you're, you're doing this. You're either going to stake a bounty and make a lot of money because you're good, or you're going to end it up finding a career and, and going into security, either in the defensive side or red teaming, or, you know, ended up going into management and, and finding a career allowing other people. I think nowadays it's, it's, it's more about not, kids have a lot more, or kids or people have a lot more opportunities to, to learn. It's, so it's not about the learning. It's more about, for me, it's like, do you have the evil beat? Like, do you get, do you enjoy doing this? And and, and I always, when I'm interviewing people uh, or mentoring people, I, what I tell them is like, hey, if you go to a supermarket, I give them this scenario, and you see that there is a bunch of products outside the supermarket, like, are you looking for the cameras and trying to say, hey, why people are not stealing these things at night? If you're the type of person that like questions everything, not just in computers, that questions like, hey, like, what could possibly go wrong here? Like, why? Like, maybe you have a life in, in cybersecurity. Right, like, and and they call that the evil bit. I think, like, hey, you you're questioning. Somebody tells you that this thing should go north, and you're like, hey, why can't I go south? Or if somebody tells you, you know, this, it's just having that beat for me. It's like, hey, you, you probably don't even realize, but you could probably be good in the general field of security. It doesn't have to be offensive. It might be defense, or it might be training, or it might be education. Now our field is much, much, much more broader than it used to be when we first started, which was very concentrated on a specific type of skills. Uh, so that's, I, I don't know if that's answered your question, Travis, but that's sort of what I will tell somebody or what I actually, when I'm trying to hire for junior people, what I usually look for is that quote unquote evil bit. Yeah, I love that. What do you think, Rob? I agree. I agree with, I agree with what Matthias said, but um, there's a quote that I can't find a good attribution for, but it's along the lines of do what you love and eventually people will pay you. And I think that's probably very, very true in the case of uh, computer security. I think you can go a long way as an individual. You can go a long way, you know, especially now things like book bounties and stuff exist that allow you to kind of incrementally start um, making some making some money. 
uh, that's actually not the path that I took. I realized, uh, as I say, kind of uh, in my teens that this was an area I was interested in. I had an opportunity to, um, during my educational career, meet some people from, from the UK government and decided that that was the kind of career that I wanted. So I was very targeted in that. So uh, while at college, my, my dissertation was deliberately targeted at, at one employer. Uh, my di- the topic of my dissertation was um, basically a data exfiltration through steganography. What it did was uh, demonstrated how you could move data past intelligent network filters um, and, and what we would now call the LP devices and those types of things by embedding data in hidden parts of the RF, well, not hidden, but just in parts of the RFC that were rarely used for legitimate traffic, but would pass any protocol verifier. And it could multiplex across multiple machines and blah. It was it was a fun project. That worked, so it was a topic that came up at my interviews. I got offered a couple of roles at, uh, at one large government agency. I went and worked there for a while. And the reason I mention this is because you get a lot of opportunities I'll just, you know, broadly in the civil service, you get a lot of opportunities that you don't necessarily get in the private sector. And I was spoiled in ways that I didn't realize at the time because it was my first real job after college. So things like training budgets, where I where I didn't make a lot of money in salary because, you know, nobody in the government does. Um, the training budgets were insane. I was doing two or three SANS courses a year. I was doing other similar, like high level, reasonably well respected security talk courses. And I was getting to do work that was pretty meaningful. Um, so the advice I give people, if they, you know, if they have an opportunity to do it, these type of like large institutions will that can take you under their wing and give you like a good space in which to grow and mature and provide a lot of training and support. Um, I really value that time. I was only there for a couple of years, but I really did value that way into the industry. Similarly, there were things I valued in my lifetime, like being able to buy a house, which I didn't see as being fully reconcilable with, with staying in government. So at, at some point, I, uh, I left uh, for the private sector, which is really where my career started to take off. Yeah, my route in was I, I knew pretty early this is what I wanted to do. Same, you know, the advice I would give somebody for their first job is the same as any job, right? But it applies more at the graduate level, maybe. Employers are looking at a ton of graduates, Right. You're applying for a graduate position, probably, or, you're, you know, you're uh, applying for a position where you're just competing with a bunch of people out of college. Everyone's got those same types of credentials. You know, everyone's done got good grades and do all that other stuff. So having something that sets you apart. In my case, it was a, two things. It was a, a dissertation and the fact that I was involved in the uh, insecurity in within the Gen 2 Linux community. Those things really help set you apart. So if I was going to give somebody advice who wanted to go out of college and follow the same track I did, find a way to show the your targeted company or organization that you care about the similar things that they do and that you're thinking about stuff beyond just the grades that you're getting right. Show them that you care about the industry and that, that, that you have an active interest in it. Um, that worked for me and uh, was, a, was a really, really interesting, really interesting start to my career. So I think, Travis, we're back around to you. Yeah, uh, building on your advice, Rob. So, you know, now as a hiring manager, I understand what it's like and, you know, why people might be hesitant to bring in somebody new. Uh, you know, a manager is responsible for a team. Team needs to get stuff done. And so as a, somebody breaking into the industry, the best thing that you could do is demonstrate to a manager that you are going to be an asset to the team. You're not going to be, you know, liability. You're not going to be someone dragging the team down. You're going to contribute. And, you know, it's nothing against you. It's just sometimes new people uh, need help. And so uh, what I recommend is actually a few things. One, open source projects. Uh, This is not something that you need any permission to do. You can just go start contributing to an open source project. And chances are whatever company that you want to work at, you know, to Rob's point, like find something that that makes you stand out with the company that you want to work at. So go find one of their open source projects and just start working on it. This does a couple of things. One, it shows that you're effective. You can put this on your resume. You can talk about it during all of your interviews. Uh, and then obviously it makes you known to the company and the people that work there. You know, if you're if you apply directly to a company, your resume goes in a big stack. It's really hard to stand out, like Rob was saying. Uh, instead, what you can do is you go through the side door. Somebody already knows who you are and they, they need somebody. So they're like, oh, hey, this person would be awesome. They've been contributing to our open source. 
we know that they're effective. They would be great here. And it, it just really helps to show interest as well. Um, and you know, the, the basics, like, you know, one of the things that sometimes, uh, you know, can be risky about bringing on somebody new is like, you know, do they know, uh, the basic, you know, fundamentals of security? So, you know, go and learn about the OWASP top 10, do some, you know, uh, vulnerable web applications or vulnerable Kubernetes or things like that. There's all kinds of free resources available that you can just go and try and demonstrate and then talk about these things during interviews. Uh, so I really like all of that stuff. Uh, big fan of building a network. So, you know, go to go to security conferences, just meet people, set a goal to meet people at conferences or go and find an online community of security folks and just interact with people. Um, try to try to meet folks. Um, that's all really good. And I think, you know, another path in is uh, you can be a software engineer or something like that and then pivot over to security. So if you're already working as a software engineer, just go, you know, hang out with the security team, ask them questions. Uh, the truth is, is that security teams at all companies are so strapped for resources that they will love anybody at the company that's not in security full time that wants to do security stuff. And if you if you show that interest, uh, you know, at a minimum, you meet some friends, you get to participate in, in some stuff. And most likely what will happen is they'll say, hey, I see that you're interested in this. Would you like to come work with us? So as a hiring manager, Travis, um, you know, now from the other side, right? Um, not only giving advice to young people, but giving advice to hiring managers. One of, one of the things that I, I don't know, that I usually tend to do, I, and I think you sort of mentioned this, I look for people that are hung, they're more hungry for knowledge a lot of the times, but I'm hiring like, you know, junior, semi-senior that are more hungry for knowledge than people that have a little bit more experience, but they sort of see it like, like a flat line. Like they're not really trying to push the envelope in their career. They're just wanting to continue to move on. And, and a lot of the times I have to, you know, hire not the candidate that most people like, but the one that I have the hunch of, I'm like, okay, this, this guy really wants to learn. This guy is, he, he might know a little bit less, but like, I'm pretty sure that the learning curve for the team is going to be faster. And he's going to become a, a much better contributor in the next six months than, than the other potential candidate. And, and, and I think that's, that's not, uh, that applies to any field in reality, but in securities, it's so important. Like, I think um, being able to know, to learn how to learn fast, it's an incredible skill in our field because we're constantly, constant switching. We constantly dealing with new technologies that come our doorstep like every other day. Working in a consulting firm helps you with that, like because you literally have to become an expert every other two weeks when somebody sells a gig and there are no experts in that specific field. But all of a sudden, you get picked and you're gonna become an expert on it, right? But if it's not that, like in a normal sort of corporate job, being hungry for knowledge and allowing yourself to learn how to learn, it's it's an incredible skill to have as an up and coming. Um, person and also from a hiring perspective I when I talk to other people and we you know when we discuss hey what you're looking for like that's one of the common skills that I usually see people looking for like hey is this guy like is this guy willing to like stay overnight trying to solve the problem not because I want to overwork him but because he has that sort of hunger for knowledge and being able to like solve the problem or hack the computer or you know find vulnerabilities and then go above and beyond his line of duty I think for me, that's a, it's a tremendous skill that usually I pick that over like current knowledge. Totally. Yeah. This is, you know, there's a lot of good things about this job, but one of them is not that you get to learn something in college and then use that for the rest of your career. It's just not that kind of job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I have, have you guys actually, I mean, besides you getting a, a job, Robert, out of your dissertation, like I think. Besides basic columns and like actually math classes were more useful than my programming classes uh, in college. It's just because pretty much everything else by the time I was graduated, it was either not really useful anymore, but like m most of my fundamentals like math and physics and, mm -hmm. you know, discrete math or number theory, those were the classes that actually I found more helpful still to this day in my career, that, that knowledge than any of my programming classes or you know, software engineering classes. You know, that's in interesting because I actually have a slightly different experience. So the, the way that my uh, college worked was that I, um, they spent a lot of time on, on software engineering and less time on actual like code development. So there was a lot of emphasis on, on design patterns and methodologies. 
um, you know, obviously, you know, come out being able to re- write a reasonable graduate level of Java and C, but but it wasn't the really hardcore coding uh, curriculum that some colleges have. And actually, I found like I went straight into a job uh, with the UK government, and and my first role in 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 the UK gov was immediately into consulting and providing security advice and development advice and doing code review for um, various organizations that were uh, that needed help. And um, I found all of that stuff very useful because it turned out that, you know, there were a lot of people out there that could write way better code than me, and <laughs> there's a lot more now. But what they couldn't, but, but a lot of those fundamentals and the engineering principles and the ability to think about um, the big problems wasn't there. So as we move along in the conversation, you know, we, we talked about a little bit, a little bit, a lot about how we get started, you know, some advices, but like, where are you guys right now? Like, what, what are you guys are doing? Where, where these awesome paths of security, where, where, where did it took you? Uh, right now I'm working at Databricks. Uh, I actually just started a new job three months ago. I'm leading product security over here. So what I realized about four years ago was that I really, you know, uh, I'm okay at code. Uh, I'm okay at systems, but what I really love is people. And specifically what I love is uh, helping people achieve awesome things in their career, getting them lined up so they can do the kind of work they like. And I, lo- I love recruiting. I love building a world-class team. So I'm getting to do a lot of that now in my current job, uh, building a team from scratch at a place that values that kind of work. Um, and yeah, you know, the management side of this business is, is totally different. Um, a lot of people want to get into management. They say things like, you know, I want to do more of my ideas or, um, you know, I want to have like time to execute more of my stuff. Like I haven't found that that's the way it works. And, you know, a lot of people are happy and technical and they should stay technical. This is, you know, in my opinion, don't get into management because you think it's a better career path. Uh, there's a lot of people doing really great technical work and they're happy doing that and they should stay doing that. Um, but for me, yeah, I really, I really love the people side of this. You know, I would be happy to have that conversation again, uh, with you all some other time, but yeah, I I think the management stuff is really fun and I've been uh, having a ton of fun doing that. How about you, Rob? I ended up, I've always been, uh, I've always been an IC. Um, occasionally I've had to step into management roles because somebody left or, or whatever, but I went from, I was in Gov for a couple of years, uh, left there um, to go uh, be the first security hire for Hewlett Packard's uh, cloud. Um, it's true, they used to have a cloud. They also used to be one company, and now they're two. While there, I got really into open source security and invested a whole bunch of time and effort in the OpenStack project. OpenStack was uh, or became at the time the, the world's largest, fastest moving um, open source project whether in counting in terms of contributors, load of code, features, releases, anything. And it was a super interesting space. I did a bunch of, a bunch of work on the, on the security and community side of that. From there, I went to IBM, did kind of more of the same, um, and then moved, changed country, moved to Seattle, uh, started work for Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. Um, during this point, I'd, got, I'd gone from being a, like a junior security engineer at HP became a distinguished and distinguished technologist at HP, um, mostly on the back of a lot of open source work, went to IBM as a distinguished engineer, went to Oracle Cloud Infrastructure as a, an architect, and then uh, most recently moved on from there to AWS, where I um, own various parts of the security, the security story for how AWS manages and delivers containers. You know, I... I enjoy working with people, but I think you're, you know, I, I've had a few tastes of running medium-sized orgs. At one point I was running a 300 person organization for a while. It is definitely not, uh, definitely not a thing I excel at. Um, I like mentoring people. I like working with them, but I don't have the, I don't have the passion and the energy for the kind of pastoral side of leadership that I know you have. So yeah, that's kind of the the kind of a really short, ugly overview of of, of my career. But continue to invest. I've been continuing to invest in open source, continuing to learn, um, and trying to get out and kind of influence the industry as much as I can. I was able to move up in my career quite quickly, and a lot of that was because my focus was external to the company. So while we're kind of throwing out advice, uh, being able to point to external visibility in the industry is a huge, huge thing that would allow you to move up quickly. And, uh, you know, allow you to gain prominence and, and to get a better voice for yourself. 
so yeah, that's a little bit, that's the kind of quick version of my journey. Uh, Matthias. Okay. Uh, before I start, I, I think I'll make a comment into something that you both guys touch. Um, a lot of people confuse management with leadership and they think that the right career path is the only way to become leadership is to through management, but that's not necessarily true. You can always be a leader and, and not in all organizations, but in most organizations, you can become an IC and still be part of leadership. Um, there are now there are roles like, you know, the architects or chief security architects or CTOs where a lot of them, but a lot of the times those can be IC roles, not necessarily where you have a management role, but you can still be part of the leadership, be, you know, part of making decisions and, and sort of like driving the organization to, to a specific area or a solution. So to your point, uh, Travis, I, I completely agree with you. Management is not for everybody, but a lot of people do take management because sometimes it's the only way. But I think that, you know, as, as security leaders, we need to do better and help people continue their career path where they're good at and where they excel at uh, and allow them to, to be there, like not. And sometimes we, we, we tend to lose great IC, ICs into management because that's the only way they can continue to grow. Maybe they, they will be successful, but the company might also be losing some very valid talent that it was, could have provided even more if he was allowed to, to stay in the IC roles. After Core, I mentioned that I worked for Core. I went to IOACTIV for a while, continued to do um, consulting. And after that, I went on an amazing but short run at Amazon that it was interrupted by an, an amazing opportunity uh, to join Okta and be the first security uh, engineer there uh, for my previous boss at Active and follow him, had a, an amazing seven year career, uh, learn what it is to work for a startup, like about 80, 100 people when I joined, something like that, all the way into like thousands of people and, you know, went through an IPO. It's grow the team from the team of one to, you know, 40, 50, 60 people. So it was, it became a manager as well, uh, going from IC to a manager, uh, mostly on the defensive side. And I literally, if, if you ask me, I think two companies sort of like have defined me so far, Core and Okta. Those were the ones that I stayed the most and sort of helped me growth. Uh, Core helped me growth, technically speaking, and Okta helped me grow technically and as a leader understanding that it wasn't only about finding a vulnerability, but finding types of vulnerabilities or, you know, going through uh, and becoming a leader uh, in, 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 in the field. And after that, when I joined Okta, I also founded, because I still love consulting, I co-founded with my wife uh, a very boutique security consulting firm. And I tend to say that that's usually where I have fun. Uh, <laughs> I take engagements that I really love and 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 try to hack my way and get chickens, you know, like chicken bumps, as I said before. Uh, but nowadays I am, um, I'm, I'm working at Oracle and I got to blame uh, Mr. Robert here uh, for it. And um, I'm an, an architect there and sort of, you know, having a, a lot of fun and solving big problems at scale. So uh, where comes next? I don't know. Like, I, I just want to, to Robert's point, I think it's, for me, it's finding big problems to solve that make me happy. And as long as I'm happy in the place that I am, I, I like to work there and, and I like to embrace it and, and try to make the best out of it. And that's, that's my advice to people, like enjoy where you are. If you're not enjoying it, find a better place and move on. Luckily, this industry has many opportunities for a lot more people than we currently are. So, you know, people should take advantage of that. Definitely. Yep, life's too short to work at a job that you're not having fun if you're in security for sure. Exactly. I mean, we 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 are extremely privileged and lucky to be get paid to do what we love, and and also to have and work at an industry where I think the currently hiring rate is I think it's like one fifty per one hundred persons. I mean, I mean, you guys, the hire manager, you you suffer it on the other side, but like if you're a, if you're looking to get higher, I think it's a tremendously amazing space to be at right now because it's uh, people that are, are looking for jobs have, have an advantage or somewhat of an advantage right now. Travis, it's, it was a pleasure having you for this episode. Uh, I look forward to see you again uh, sometime soon if you would like to talk with these two crazy guys and probably even have you when, when Paul is back from vacation. But uh, 
thanks a lot. Uh, we don't have any more topics. This was, a, I guess, a, our first special edition with a special guest. So This is great. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot to both of you and have a good weekend. Thanks, Matthias. Thanks, Travis. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. See you. Bye.